How did the wealthiest country in the world get to a point where it can't support the health and long-term care needs of more than 54 million older adults? Welcome to A Question of Care, a podcast that explores the many answers to this question through different viewpoints and topics. I'm your host, Robert Espinoza, a national expert and frequent speaker on aging, long-term care, and the workforce. On this episode, we're directing our focus towards nursing homes and exploring the pressing question, why have so many nursing home residents died during the COVID-19 pandemic, and what are the forces at hand? Here to guide us on this journey is David Grabowski, an esteemed professor and authority in the field of nursing homes and long-term care for older adults. Hi, I'm David Grabowski. I'm a professor of healthcare policy at Harvard Medical School, where I study issues of long-term care and post-acute care for older adults. Before diving into today's topic, it's important to understand who the average nursing home resident is. During the height of the pandemic, we got used to seeing news stories about nursing home residents dying in droves, making it easy to forget sometimes that these residents are also individuals. They are our parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, and our friends. To help contextualize our conversation, David described for us who makes up the average nursing home resident nursing home residents have a pretty broad range of backgrounds and care needs. But your typical nursing home resident, it's usually a she, but he or she is in their 80s. They have oftentimes both limitations in terms of cognitive functioning and physical functioning. High rates of Alzheimer's and related dementia need for assistance with activities of daily living, such as bathing and dressing and toileting and walking. And they also have quite a high level of medical complexity. And that means that there's a real onus on coordinating both their long-term care needs, but also their, their, their medical needs as well. And I should add one more point that there are within nursing homes, two very distinct types of residents. So the resident that I just described is a long-stay resident. He or she would be receiving long-term care services. They would expect to be there for the rest of their lives. Their care would typically be financed by the Medicaid program with some out-of-pocket private payment. There's a second type of of nursing home resident, and that's a short-stay individual post-acute who has come from the hospital and would typically spend four to five weeks in a, in a nursing home before transitioning back to the community. The final point is that there is some blurriness with these groups and that sometimes an individual comes to a nursing home as a quote unquote short stayer and transitions into a long stayer. And then sometimes you have long stayers that will need to go to the hospital and then come back for rehab and therapy and for a short period of time be kind of post-acute patients. But the the post-acute patients tend to be younger. They tend to have higher cognitive and physical functioning, but they have really sort of short-term needs around therapy and rehab. In 2020, Professor Grabowski was appointed by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine to its Committee on the Quality of Care in Nursing Homes, which examined how the U.S. delivers, finances, regulates, and measures the quality of nursing home care. 
The committee released its final report in 2022 and offered a brief history of nursing homes, which helps partially explain why they are the way they are today. It notes how families were historically responsible for delivering care to older adults and people with disabilities. However, due to various federal policy developments in the 20th century and medical advances, nursing homes began mirroring, quote, an acute care model with a medical focus. So what has this medical setting model meant for both nursing home residents and the sector overall? You'd be hard pressed to find anyone that wants to live in a hospital, yet many of the nursing homes around the country look like a hospital and have the same setup. You know, the nurse's station at the end of the hallway, the long linoleum flooring with rooms on either side and two to four residents per room. This might work in a hospital. And I, I stress the word might. This does not work for a nursing home where, as I just described, these are individuals, the long stayers that are going to be there for the rest of their lives months and years in, in this setting. This is not very home-like. It's over-medicalized. That's not to say we don't need clinical care. I, I said earlier, there's incredible medical complexity, but we need to balance the, the nursing part of the, the nursing home with, with the home side. And this history sort of growing out of hospitals that, you know, these large institutional buildings that, that have, a, have a real medical feel hasn't hasn't served our, our residents well in the sense that it is their home and the quality of life has, has really suffered in these buildings. And unfortunately, many times they haven't done either the nursing, the medical side of it, or the quality of life and, and home-like aspect of nursing home care very well either. But by over-medicalizing the, the delivery of services, it's created a setting where it's very institutional and not really about the needs of the residents. It's much more about the sort of need of the nursing home itself. And that hasn't, once again, served nursing home residents very well. David, under what conditions would you live in a nursing home? So like everybody else, I would I would prefer to to receive my long-term care in the community, but I, I would move to, to a nursing home if... I believe my quality of life would, would be better there. And there are points for all of us where nursing home care may offer the set of services that that I, I would need. And so I think there's often been this zero-sum way of looking at nursing home care vis-a-vis home and community-based services. I'm a huge supporter of home and community-based services. Everybody who can receive services in the home in the community should receive services in the home in the community. But it's not realistic to think that all of us are going to be able to do that. Sometimes quality of life and, and quality of, of, of caregivers' lives are gonna be higher if, if, a, if a family member receives services in, in a nursing home. I'd have some pretty strong feelings as you can imagine, Robert, on what kind of nursing home I would wanna, wanna enter into, but I, I think I would do it if, if I felt my quality of life in the community was at a point where it was no longer manageable and I, I could could have a higher quality of life in, in a nursing home. If someone you loved needed to reside in a nursing home, what would you advise them? I would really want them to seek out a place where both the nursing and the home are strong. And so let's start with the nursing. Nursing is all about staff. Staff are the backbone of any nursing home in the U.S. One of the things I like to say is that as a nursing home is only as good as its staff. And that's really true. Like you, you just, you need a place with a strong nursing model. We can talk more about this point, but I, I really believe you want, a, you want a place where, one, it's well-staffed, the staff ha are retained and, 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 and want to be there for the, for the long term. The staff are valued and empowered. 
And then the home side of it, I want to find a place that doesn't feel like that big institution we described earlier. I want to find a find a place where it, it really feels like my home. It's it's my room. It, it, it's I can wake up when I want. I can go into my room and and spend time doing the things that I want to do or spend time with with others. If you come into my room as a staff member, you knock on the door. That that's my space. I'm empowered the same way the staff in the building are empowered. If we treat residents and 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 staff with the dignity that that, that both deserve. That's the kind of nursing home I want my 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 family member to choose. Unfortunately, there aren't many of those out there, and that's the real struggle. And that's why we we set out for that National Academies report you described to really transform nursing homes because most nursing homes in the U.S. today don't have strong nursing and don't have strong home-like models. That needs to change. In the nursing home report, we're discussing the committee lays out various factors that influence the quality of care in nursing homes. And I want to review a few of them for your thoughts. Since the beginning of COVID-19, nursing home residents and staff have been disproportionately impacted by this pandemic. And we know that one of the reasons nursing home residents are vulnerable to this virus is that they often have the medical conditions that put them at risk of severe complications. But there are other reasons as well. Why has the nursing home sector been so ravaged by this pandemic? We termed it in one of the papers we wrote, a perfect storm. If you wanted to design a sector that would be most impacted by COVID, you would design the U.S. nursing home sector. And unfortunately, it was that perfect storm. So one, this is somebody's home. So it's very different than a hospital. And because of it's, it's a home, it, it has a very different feel in terms of personal protective equipment and, and the ways in which social distancing might occur. The second part of this, you have staff members kind of coming in and out every day. Some of these staff live in areas that had huge outbreaks in the community. Those staff are moving room to room. Sometimes these staff are working across different buildings because, so again, we're not paying them a living wage. And so they're having to, to, to work across, across multiple settings. Third, we, we have these residents packed into a very kind of small space here, oftentimes sharing rooms, two, three, four residents in a room together. If one of them gets COVID, how do we keep the other roommates from ultimately getting COVID? And then four, you, you, you do have older, frailer individuals. Once they have COVID, this is not like, you know, high school age kids getting getting COVID. This is this is uh, our, our frailest and most vulnerable individuals in the country getting COVID. And so what could have been just uh, maybe needing to be in, in bed for a few days if you were in the community, for them meant hospitalization and, and, and death. And so that's why why we saw the numbers that that we did see in this setting. It was just really hard to to keep out. And then once in nursing homes, it was really hard to keep from spreading. We did a study with a Massachusetts nursing home where we, we looked at them back in April of 2020. I was involved in an effort here in Massachusetts to try to identify kind of nursing homes with no COVID where we might create you know, an environment where we could move other residents into the building as, you know, we were, we were trying to think about COVID and, and non-COVID environments. And we went into this building, not, not a single resident was reporting uh, any COVID symptoms in early April. We tested every resident. It turned out nearly half of the residents in the building had COVID without even knowing in early April. 
by the end of the month, roughly two thirds of the residents by that point had COVID. 30 of them had died by the end of April 2020. That's how quickly we would go from no, no symptoms to two weeks later having uh, 30 residents having died from COVID. Things moved very quickly. And the challenge was, at least back in 2020, was really how do we keep it out and then how do we contain it? And th this was not a setting well-equipped to, to either keep it out or contain it. The report notes that about 1.2 million people help provide care and maintain nursing homes, including nurses, nursing assistants, administrators, and many others. And yet most direct care in nursing homes is provided by nursing assistants. And nursing homes have struggled to recruit and retain these workers to the point that many say it's now a crisis. What are the workforce challenges facing nursing homes? And what would it take to convince a nursing assistant to take and stay in this occupation? Yeah, it, it's a really interesting workforce. And I try to explain this to colleagues that study other parts of the healthcare system. Nursing homes have, you know, physicians and registered nurses and licensed practical nurses, but the bulk of the workforce are these certified nurse aides. They're doing most of the direct caregiving. So most of those tasks we've been discussing, bathing, dressing, toileting, walking, feeding the residents, that's the certified nurse aides or CNAs. How do we recruit these individuals? The first thing is, is pay, uh, pay and benefits. I always start by saying that that's necessary, but not sufficient. And let me explain what I mean by that. Nobody wants to take these jobs if they're, if they're not well compensated and well supported, but that's not going to be enough to, to bring a lot of new individuals into these, into these jobs and then keep them in these jobs. Nursing homes compete with a lot of other parts of the, of the economy. It's not just other healthcare settings An RN might move from a nursing home to a hospital or physician's office. A CNA might move from working in a nursing home to Amazon or Walmart or McDonald's. There's other jobs. And if those other jobs are paying more, and by the way, in some ways, maybe easier and better working conditions, then it's not just about pay. So pay has to be a big part of this. We need to support the caregivers in nursing homes, but that's just the first step. The second step is really making these jobs worth having. And there have been some some nursing home operators that have really changed the the working conditions in nursing homes, empowering workers. Uh, a, a typical nursing home, you know, we have sixteen thousand nursing homes in the U.S. We have kind of more nursing homes in the U.S. than Starbucks or McDonald's, and they need lots of workers. It, it's been hard to recruit individuals given. You know, the, these aren't great jobs. And guess what? This only got harder during the pandemic. We, you know, we've never valued this workforce. But during the pandemic, we wrote an, an op-ed for The Washington Post, several of us that argued. We, we, we ran some quick calculations and, and, and discovered nursing home worker was the most dangerous job in America during the pandemic. So on top of the low pay, the, the challenges, the difficulty of the work, it's also really rewarding work. So I'm not trying to say that you know, uh, gosh, no, no one should take these jobs. It's the opposite. We should value the the important work that's being done in these settings. But on top of everything else, the challenges of the pandemic, the the fear that a lot of residents had of, of getting COVID uh, themselves and and bringing it home, we lost a lot of caregivers in, in nursing homes, and that that's something that I think we really need to revisit here as we as we think about nursing home policy going forward how, how do we how do we support this workforce both 
in terms of pay and benefits, but also uh, working conditions that really support the, the important work that's occurring in, in these settings. What I appreciate about the report is that it also looks to the future and imagines the kinds of you know, recommendations and policy changes that need to happen to really transform the nursing home sector. The first overarching conclusion from the report states, quote, the way that the U.S. finances, delivers, and regulates care in nursing homes is ineffective, inefficient, fragmented, and unsustainable. What stands out for you from this conclusion? Yeah, I I, I love that conclusion. And, and the part that stands out is the unsustainable part. And that doesn't mean, when I say it's unsustainable, that doesn't mean it's suddenly going to get effective, efficient, and coordinated. What I mean by that, and what we meant by that, was it's going to get worse. We have aging baby boomers. We need to change this now or else we're not going to have a nursing home model that's sustainable for all of us. And I often ask that question to colleagues and friends. And when I'm speaking to different audiences, where do you think you're getting your long-term care? Where do you think you're getting your nursing home care? These are the options out there. We're not, for the most part, we have a, a, a very, I'll repeat the quote, an ineffective, inefficient, and fragmented model. And if all of us receive our care there, we're going to have the same outcomes that that older adults do today. So if, if we want better options, we need to go about creating those better options today such that they're there for all of us, because otherwise it's it's even going to look worse in 20, 25 years after the, the, the baby boomers have really kind of gone through their their long term care years. If we don't fix this now. We're not going to have the options for all of us going forward. David, are there any developments either in policy or practice that give you hope regarding the nursing home sector? Yeah, there, 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 there's a few. So I'm part of a, a group called Moving Forward. We're, we're a coalition. Uh, I, I co-chair a working group on a nursing home payment and financing, but there's working groups for health information technologies, workforce staffing, there's quality of care, there's regulation. So we're, we're trying to change all of the issues that were brought up in the National Academies report. It's hard. This is not easy, but it's trying to take the the 600 pages that we wrote and the recommendations that we made for the the nursing home industry and trying to work with them and and, and put these recommendations into practice. So I hope listeners will want to get involved in this effort. It's 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 a broad coalition of workers and and operators and advocates and ombudsmen and you name the role medical directors and if there's a role in nursing homes we have them represented in our in our coalition but i'm i'm optimistic or hopeful as as you asked about because a lot of us want to roll up our sleeves and change things one of the things that's always struck me about nursing homes i don't know that the current payment models regulatory models quality of care staffing are working very well for any of the stakeholders involved. They're not working well for residents or family members. They're not working well for staff in these buildings, operators, and on and on and on. Um, it, it needs to change. And so I think everyone's kind of come to the table looking to change things. It's not going to be easy. I worry that nursing homes, although they were front and center during 2020 and 2021, kind of faded a little bit and and they're not still at the you know in the headlines maybe that's a good thing because that means that we're not seeing the case rates and the death rates but a lot of the factors as we've been discussing that led to those high case rates that led to those high death rates are still present and so i almost think you know we, we 
all the causal factors are still there and this sector isn't unfortunately in a better position today than it was in 2019 early 2020 to withstand the next pandemic we really need to invest in this sector and not just for the next pandemic but just because it's in need of huge improvements that needs to start today I, i think the moving forward coalition is an effort to try to do that slowly to try to kind of make change If you could do anything to transform the nursing home sector, what would you do? I'm a big fan of the of the greenhouse model. So let me quickly explain greenhouse. I'm certain many of your listeners are are already aware of this model, but it's basically a small house model where eight to 12 older adults live in a home together. Each has their own room. The the residents, it's, it's really their home. They get up when they want, you knock to go into their room. They spend their days the way they want to spend it, not the way the the nursing home wants them to spend it. If they want to go out in the outside and garden during the summer months or during the spring, that's that's their prerogative. It, it's, it's really about living a meaningful life. The staff, it's not the hierarchical uh, model that we see at a traditional nursing home. The staff are empowered, valued, well-paid. They take on a universal worker model there where they're cooking and doing some cleaning as well in the home. The meals are, are cooked right there. The elders eat around a table together. So you you have these sort of three components, an empowered staff, a resident-centered model, and a small home. That's the kind of transformation. In order for that model to happen, however, we need to change kind of payment models, regulatory models, staff, everything around it needs to change. That's the kind of nursing home that if I was out there looking for a loved one, I that that's the kind of place that we would all want, I think, our loved ones to receive care. Life still has a, you know, meaning in, in that type of environment. However, there are just so few of them, and that, that's the real policy failure. Both of my parents passed away in nursing homes located about 15 miles away from each other in northern Colorado. My mother died in December 2020 after having lived in the home for nearly seven years. And my father, in February of this year, passed away quietly in a hospice unit after only a few days. The nursing homes where they spent their final moments embody both the offerings and the challenges that David describes in this episode, a duality that leaves many of us conflicted about the future of this sector. On the one hand, moving into a nursing home was the only affordable option for both of my parents given their needs, and that's a reality shared by many people who enter these settings. Despite the lack of choice, my mother raved about several of the home staff members, from her physical therapist, to the CNAs and head nurse, and to the woman who drove her to dialysis three days a week. She considered these employees good friends and the facility her home, despite its many flaws, frequent odors, understaffing, distasteful food options, and its hospital-like aesthetic. But those flaws are neither episodic nor are they minor. They are part of a broader systemic failure that leaves millions of residents and frontline workers at the mercy of any crisis. So when COVID-19 ravaged nursing homes in its first year, it revealed not just the medical frailty of many nursing home residents, but their expendability in a society that grossly devalues older adults and people with disabilities, especially if they are low-income, people of color, and women. As David explained, nursing homes don't have enough transparency or checks and balances regarding who owns and who profits from them, or how they are run. 
It doesn't help that government funding for any part of long-term care often leaves these homes unsafe and without adequate staffing. They continue to feel less like homes and more like hospitals. Ultimately, while nursing homes might be the best option in our current system for certain individuals, this assertion is less a fixed reality and more a sad commentary on our policy priorities as a country. Many people don't have an option to choose anything other than a nursing home, and those inequities are defined along the axes of race, class, and gender. Imagine instead if the home care system was funded properly and functioned smoothly so that all Americans could live in their preferred long-term care setting. How many people would choose to stay home until their final days? And is that the ideal society we should be creating? Thank you to my guest, David Grabowski, and to you, our listeners. If you enjoyed this episode of A Question of Care, please share it on your social channels and stay tuned for future episodes. This podcast was produced by me, Robert Espinoza, in partnership with Modri Media. Please make sure to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening.